Hello Canada and the rest of the world, and welcome, kind of, sort of, to another episode of the Netflix podcast. We're going a little bit off routine today because, unfortunately, due to some unforeseen illness, not that we ever see those coming, but I haven't had time to get a new episode ready for you, so instead, you are in for one hell of a treat. A few weeks ago? A month ago? Yeah, I guess it was, man, time flies. A couple of months ago, I had the absolute pleasure to be a guest on a relatively new podcast called Liminalia, which is a often horror, often sci-fi themed podcast that likes to explore the edges of different genres. So the host of Liminalia is Tom Stewart. You've heard him on this show a couple of times before. He invited me on to talk about David Cronenberg's The Fly. And with his permission, uh, what I'm going to be doing here today is sharing that episode with you instead. Uh, It's an episode that I'm very proud of. It's one of the best sounding things that I've ever had my voice used for. And uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun having the discussion and I hope that you get something out of it as well. So please give a listen, give a chance to Liminalia. And if you like what you heard, then absolutely subscribe and see everything else that he's done so far and everything he'll be doing moving forward. I'll, uh, I'll stop jibber-jabbering now, and I'll let you enjoy the episode. And hopefully I'll be back in another couple of weeks with regular episodes as we normally do things. Enjoy. The, um, did you see the uh, what Vincent Price had to say about this? Oh, yeah, when uh, Jeff Goldblum wrote him and yeah. said, hey, I really appreciate, like, I'm, I'm a big fan of your work. I hope you like mine. And Vincent Price was like, I did, up to a point. Yeah, and it, then was it was wonderful it was, up to a point. It was too much. <laughs> Which, yeah, when you sent me the text, it is repugnant. Do not watch this while you're eating dinner. I yeah. I was not prepared for how. Did I oversell it? No, no, you did not. I don't know if I've ever used the word repugnant in my life before. (laughs) (laughs) I was saving it for this moment. (laughs) Repugnant, gratuitous, gruesome, more than a little tragic, but also fascinating. I was 10, maybe 11, when I had my first migraine. It's an inheritance. My mother has them, her brother gets them, my grandmother, and now, me. We were visiting my grandparents in Vancouver, and for a full day, I lay in a dark room, drifting in and out, unable to keep anything down but Breton crackers, until late. Late at night with everyone asleep, it was gone. I could turn on a light. I could hear the click of the light switch without feeling it through my head. And there, close to the bed, was a TV and no one around. Oh, come on. I was 10, maybe 11, when I watched The Fly for the first time. Something about a man in pain, whose body and mind had turned against him. I don't remember how much I saw, what fraction. I watched it through my fingers late into the night. I flicked away to 24-hour news or some black and white period piece whenever it got too intense. Too sad. Whenever another limb was shed. But I kept coming back. So, for our first Halloween episode, I knew what I wanted to return to, and I knew who I wanted to talk to. A film critic, a local podcaster, someone who once named this film in his top five of all time. Because yes, it's disgusting. And yes, it is excessive. But the fly gets under your skin, especially if you're 10, maybe 11, huddled under the blankets, watching late night horror for the first time. My name is Tom Stewart, and this is Liminalia. 
a podcast exploring the strange corners of fiction. So do you want to introduce yourself and give your name and what you do? Yeah, I am Dylan Clark Moore. I am the creator and host of the Netflix podcast, which is dedicated to doing overly long and pretentious analysis of movies that are available to stream on Netflix in Canada. And boy, howdy, if you like overly long and pretentious analysis, you should listen to the episode that I just did for Netflix, which was on The Day the Earth Stood Still. We're actually recording this immediately after that episode, so if we sound exhausted and like it's midnight, it's because this is another midnight recording for one of these Liminalia podcasts. Yes, and if you like things that are overlong and pretentious, check out the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still. (laughs) A movie that neither of us particularly enjoyed, I think. So... Given that, what were your thoughts on The Fly? Okay, uh, a bit of background on The Fly. I first saw it, I think, five or six years ago in my younger Halcyon days. I don't actually know if I'm using that expression correctly. Those nostalgic golden days. Yes, those golden days of 2010. Right. The first time I ever watched it, it had a profound impact on me in that I... I immediately felt like this is one of my favorite movies I've ever seen. Oh, wow. Okay. I think it was just because it affected me and made me feel something in a way that a Dylan who grew up on television as a third parent hadn't really been affected by things before. By and large, I was just used to consuming media, having it go into my eyes, and then become a thing that I could reference in between Simpsons quotes. Right. This has a way of cutting through kind of viewer and apathy. Yeah, this cut through that. I was seeing something that I'd never seen before. And so this to me felt like, okay, this is so different and so shocking that I associated it very closely with greatness. And now watching it again, that sheen has kind of come off, but it's still like a profoundly disturbing movie. This is only my second time watching it all the way through, I think. And it surprised me. Even I've seen it in the last five years. It still shocked me in terms of how disturbing it gets towards the end. I So I had a different experience watching it for the first time than you did because I watched it when I was uh, 11 or 12. Good Lord. Where were your parents? (laughs) I was at my grandparents' place. Where were your grandparents? (laughs) I have this like very distinct memory because I was like sick in bed and it was late at night and That's I not gonna help. turned the television on and I do not remember much of this film because I kept getting so scared. I was not the kind of kid that would watch horror. I kept getting so scared that I would like switch to another channel and then I would come back to it. So I had a very cut up memory of what the hell this movie was about. I knew that it was kind of like a 1950s creature feature because, spoiler, it's a remake of a 1950s creature feature, but I didn't really know much about it. And it was a bit of a punch in the stomach, not just for the nausea, but also for how well put together this film is, how emotionally affecting it is. I mean, it is a gruesome and woozy film, but it is also a very tragic film, I think, in terms of what happens to a reasonably decent human being. So first, let's just get into a very basic summary of this movie. Mm -hmm. This film follows the relationship between a science reporter, Veronica, and a brilliant young scientist named Seth Brundle, who has created what he calls telepods. They are a way to instantly teleport matter from one area to another. What he struggles with, though, is taking a living creature. Mm -hmm. As the film progresses, he irons out those kinks and ends up going through on his own, but ends up being fused with another creature that happened to be in the telepod at the exact same time, a fly. And we watch as his flesh, which has become synthesized with this fly, slowly turns into a human fly creature. Right. It is particularly disgusting. So often mad science, and this I think could kind of fit into that, this fits into the kind of genre of body horror, but also the genre of the mad scientist, Frankenstein, for example, Herbert West for another kind of body horror 80s uh, film. Usually that has a kind of message of do not tamper in God's domain or something clear to take away about what our relationship to technology is. Did you find anything like that in 
here because I found that it was a difficult film to parse in terms of what it was trying to say. No, I didn't feel, I, n- I never felt like the technology itself was the villain of the piece. Mm-hmm. Um, it was irresponsible use right. of the technology. The downfall of Seth Brundle happens when he makes an irresponsible decision to use the technology. He does it in a moment of drunkenness, in a moment of emotion, where he says, fuck it, I'm going to go through. Yeah. Um, and at that point, I mean, I suppose maybe some more testing would have eventually led to finding out that fusion was possible through these pods. Right. But it's it's because of an impulsive decision that the horror starts to happen. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, it's less about the science and it's more about disease. Yeah, like watching that, a person kind of live with that decision as it goes through its various reactions. Yeah. At no point does it actually feel like a cautionary tale about science or or, or at least, you know, the, the mad scientist idea. Like, he doesn't right. go too far. Yeah. When Veronica sees the pods and understands what they do, she agrees with him that this is an invention that is going to change the world. This is what I actually came looking for. This is the story that is going to change the world. It's not, my God, what has this man done? This isn't Frankenstein. This no, isn't, yeah. This isn't oh, an God, inherently like he, wrong technology. You don't feel this kind of... Exactly. It's a helpful technology. Yeah. It is. It seems like a natural progression of where human humanity. It seems like a a natural progression to where humanity would want to take science and a, almost a logical step. Or maybe that's just informed by watching Star Trek. But <laughs> you know, it seems like something that we would want to do. And I believe recently scientists have been able to move a like a photon into space through some kind of teleportation. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. I have probably spoken out of turn. You may want to do some research before you edit this episode. Before the U.S. government shows up to shut down our podcast because you just. <laughs> shared secrets but yeah i believe like we're we're moving towards this as a race like that's really interesting plausibility of this this concept of technology so it's not that it's it's something else there's something else to the horror of this i think that yeah, he's not a mad scientist he's a scientist who got mad yeah actually i would agree with that i think that's a really good way of saying it one of the tragedies of this is that we watch his body break down and his mind trails behind the breakdown of his body his mind is breaking down as well into this kind of brundle fly but it follows his body. He has the sanity to recognize that his body is falling apart, that he is moving closer and closer to death or transformation or some kind of, I don't know, apotheosis of himself. It's There's an interesting almost game of chase that happens between the degradation of his mind and his body because it, it's really his mind that starts to go f- I'm not going to say first, but most dramatically. Right. The first change that you notice, aside from him being able to do flip de doos and whatnot, is that his his skin starts to look a bit, uh, like, bumpy. Yeah. Um, and so you get the sense that something is wrong. Like, he's no longer the, the hunky, awkward, <laughs> proto... You can say hunky. He's, well, yeah, he's yeah, pretty but it's, gorgeous. It's, it's the... I don't know if I'm looking at him through rose-tinted 21st century love of internet mascot Jeff Goldblum glasses or if he's meant to be hunky in this movie. Yeah, society has also turned pretty quickly to liking nerds, which the 1980s Thank taught God. us yeah, very much to not like nerds. But yeah, so so his, his skin starts to become compromised. Right. What's more shocking and more upsetting is how arrogant he gets and how cruel he becomes to Veronica. Right. Like that's... Like, his mind and his attitude towards himself is what seems to go first. But yeah. then once he has that moment of clarity, that's when he he has this recognition of what's going on. And then it seems like the deterioration of his body gets a chance to catch up and then pass the degradation oh, of his yeah, mind. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. And then almost towards the end, almost until he completely transforms into the fly brundle instead of the brundle fly, mm-hmm. you know, after he goes through the pod and whatnot, or after he collapses into... <laughs> <laughs> um he's pretty well on top of things like he's got he's fighting against ticks and yeah he seems to be able to observe the degradation as it goes on after that first complete cocaine break yeah and that's one of the things that i found really interesting about his transformation is how of the time it was it is at once overdetermined if we want to take the kind of freudian router just there are so many possible ways of reading it but it does feel like a very 80s transformation There are a number of people that have looked upon his physical transformation as speaking to the AIDS crisis. He's getting these lesions on his body. His body is turning against itself. He talks about it as a cancer within the film. But at the same time, his kind of manic phase after originally going through 
the telepod is clearly something akin to a cocaine addiction. He has heightened potency. He has a huge amount of physical energy. His tics increase. He gets much more narcissistic, has these fantasies about his importance in the world. So the whole thing kind of goes through this very bizarre series of layers of what's going on in the 1980s at the time. Yeah, I mean, the... I'm not in any way equipped to participate in an intelligent discussion about the AIDS crisis. But from what I understand, Cronenberg Cronenberg's story was intended to just talk about disease in yeah, general. That's and, what he and had, also the aging process. Right. That's what he had in his mind. Mm-hmm. And then just the timing of it aligned very appropriately with the AIDS crisis. And I just, that bums me out so much because of how the movie ends. Yeah. And the the overall narrative flow of the movie that it's not it's not this story where he ends up getting to preserve his dignity by the end like he's totally consumed by this disease. Yeah, you can see why Cronenberg warred against the AIDS reading, even though it is it was so in the people's minds when this was first being aired, screened. <laughs> they don't when this was when first this was first screened. streamed on Netflix. Yes, yeah. exactly. Specifically because if that is the metaphor that this movie is putting forward, it does not paint that struggle in any decent light at all. It ends up just trading on that in order to point out the degradation of the human body. Well, and I think at at that point, and probably still, I think that when it comes to HIV and AIDS, there can sometimes be this, this narrative that gets tied to it of, you know, you did something that led to this happening. Right. Which I suppose Brundle did. But, I mean, the connection between the, the punishment and the... Yeah, anyway, I'm going completely off. No, no, I understand. And, and similarly, it paints those with an affliction as monstrous, where I think perhaps a more interesting reading is that the idea of our own physical body, whether we are aging, whether we are diseased, um, just our relationship to our body is, in a way monstrous, which is a much more kind of Cronenbergian idea. That's something that he follows through in Existen's Videodrome. This idea of flesh and our relationship to flesh is a kind of monstrous or at least very fraught relationship. Mm-hmm. That word flesh gets, oh boy. Oh yeah, it's used a lot take in a, this take movie. Take a shot every time <laughs> Seth Brundle says the word flesh. Good lord. The, uh, the scene where he storms out, you would die from alcohol poisoning yeah. when he goes on his poetic tirades. And that's a really interesting moment as well, too, because he's quoting from a Shelley poem. This is Editing Tom stepping in. It's an Alexander Pope poem, an essay on criticism, not a Shelley poem. I'm disappointed, too. But he puts a plasma fountain into this Shelley poem. A little learning is a dangerous thing. Drink deep or taste not the Pyrian spring. There shallow draughts intoxicate the brain, and drinking largely sobers us again. The sense that flesh is tied to knowledge, that flesh is also kind of overrunning in this film. There's just so much materiality that he ends up being just all body toward the end of the film is really interesting to me. Drink deep, or taste not the plasma spring. See what I'm saying? No, I'm not just talking about sex and penetration. I'm talking about penetration beyond the veil of the flesh. A deep, penetrating dive into the plasma pool. That starts off during the, the what you described as a cocaine binge. That starts off as a positive thing. That yeah, he's it does. Some, he's hyper aware of his body and its capabilities. Yeah. But then it seems to betray him. And then he tries to come to grips with it. He tries to be scientific about it and just kind of accept what's happening and be like, okay, well, now I've created the morbid cabinet of... The natural history. The natural of history. Of, yeah. Where yeah. he's keeping all of the appendages that have fallen off. He's trying to navigate this relationship with his body that he knows he's going to lose. But then with the with the constant the recitation of poetry, like he doesn't before this all happens. I believe that everything he says is like original thought, original words, or mm-hmm. at least he's not quoting anything. Yeah. But then after that happens, after the experiment, and especially when he starts to deteriorate, he often speaks in quoting and referencing and re- reciting things. And what that said to me or what that seemed to imply to me is 
this man who's suddenly faced with his own mortality is now having an experience that provides him access to art in a way that he didn't have before. Oh, that's really interesting. In that he's now able to understand, okay, this is what... I, I don't, I'm a poetry scrub. I didn't recognize well, anything that he was reciting. I study horror literature. Like, I'm no better than you. <laughs> um, but he was able to then recognize things in these words that he didn't have access to before because right. they, were, they were, his experience changed and then his relationship with these texts changed and suddenly they made sense. Even they, right they down seemed to... like the most appropriate way of expressing himself because somebody great had said it before. They didn't matter to him before. I think the perfect moment of that is a kind of joke moment when he says there was an old lady who swallowed a fly. Perhaps she'll die. Yeah. There is actually a lot of horror to that line when he gives it, despite it also being a comedic line. I think that's a really interesting point. It also kind of speaks to how interested this movie is in hybrids, that it's after he becomes a hybrid between human and animal and, in a certain way, machine, that the movie starts becoming interested. Oh, that's the very end. Yeah. (laughs) The movie becomes interested in branching out and starting to grab in all of these other illusions as well, right down to a very odd illusion when he first gets out of the telepod and the baboon jumps up into his arms, which I think is supposed to be an illusion allusion to Tarzan and Cheetah, but I don't know what the heck to do with that. But the movie becomes desperate to start adding these things to it as soon as he becomes a hybrid himself. Mm-hmm. So in the kind of pilot explanation for Liminalia, because we are still kind of finding our feet, this is only the third episode, I talked about finding these little moments in the movie that seem to stand out to you. One of them, for me, is the way in which Brundlefly keeps talking about how the disease has its own kind of subjectivity. The disease wants this. He says at one point, when he's climbing the walls, and he's discovered that he can climb the walls, that he has caught quote, a disease with a purpose, end quote, as though it has this intentionality to it, this goal or end point, rather than just being an expression of genes that have become problematically tainted. Yeah. I thought that was really, really interesting because of the way in which Cronenberg approaches the idea of flesh, the idea of this body that is not in a kind of duality with our mind, but necessarily part of how we live. Mm-hmm. Even with the question of one's past, you're talking about the body because you're talking about genetics, about how much your physical form affects your philosophical form and your mental form. David Cronenberg. So I think there are a couple of things going on there. Yeah. One is whatever the opposite of existentialism is, where you're just attributing purpose to things to make them feel better. Oh, I um, guess we call that religion. Yeah, I guess so. Um, <laughs> where I mean, when something when something is horrifying, when something is terrifying, when something is happening to you, if you can give it a purpose, if you mm-hmm. can try to understand it, it makes it real. It makes it tangible. It makes it less scary. Yeah. So I think that's part of it. It gives a kind of face to what he's paired with in this hybrid form. Like there is another thing that he can war against. Mm-hmm. Also, I think that as a scientist, he understands that this is also partially true. Like, he's being poetic about it. And that's why I think these two things are happening at the same time. But also, like, cancer, which is how he describes it, and which I think is accurate. Yeah, I think so. I mean, cancer is just your cells being enthusiastic. Um... But I mean, honestly, that's what yeah. it is. It is your your it is your own body, and yep. it's behaving in a way that is abnormal to you. But for the cancer cells, they're just doing their job. Yes, right? they are reproducing in the way that they're supposed to. Exactly. And I read a blog post recently from I believe it's Lisa Faden. Okay. I don't want to pay any disrespect by mispronouncing her name. Well, she wrote about basically making friends with her cancer. Oh, interesting. Um, which for me, as I mean, like I, I lost my mother to cancer about a year ago. Yeah. Um, like very quickly, like there was six weeks. We went from like, hey, I feel kind of sick to just like dead. Not, I'm not trying to bum you out. I'm no. not trying to bum at anybody. But you just watched We're the fly. We're talking about the fly. So, we can't get more bummed so you're out. Already yeah. Fucked. Um, she talks about having this relationship with her cancer that isn't about, which doesn't involve necessarily having this uh, warrior mentality about like I'm going to fight this. It's more about having a a messy roommate that you need to take care of or like somebody oh, who's just always there yeah but it's part of you right it's your own cells so to feel like you're fighting against it means that you're at war with your own body so coming to terms with that and making some kind of peace with it so that you can have some 
degree of serenity inside your own body. Mm -hmm. That's the blend of science and psychology, or I guess biology and psychology, that I think is happening for Seth Brundle there, where he's telling himself a story so that he feels better, but also acknowledging the reality of what's happening inside of him and acknowledging that, I mean, as a scientist, when he, his horror sets in when he realizes that the fly is inextricably part of him now. Yes. He knows this isn't reversible. He knows he's not going to be able to undo this. So he's making peace with it, understanding exactly, or I mean, not with a full understanding of the science of it, but having enough of an understanding of the science of what's going on inside of him to not have hope for anything different. Mm -hmm. And I think that comes down to, as well, a choice that this movie does as a remake that in the original film, there are certain parts of the scientists that get replaced with a fly. And then the fly has those similar parts as as the human. This film chooses to make it far more integral to his own body. It writes the fly right into his genes so that there is no kind of ability to excise, right? Like it I is... often have problems with the fly on my genes. <laughs> Heyo. Smash to credits. We're going to be here all night. But I think there's, like, as a part of that hybrid, like, how integral it is to his own genes, like, I think that might also explain a bit of why the disease has a subjecthood, because the disease is his own subjecthood. Like, he talks about it as different than him. But if it has a subjecthood, it's because, or an identity, it's because it is integral to his identity. The disease is as much a part of him as his own identity is a part of him. It's written right into his body yeah i mean i guess he is kind of doing the warrior thing as well because he's not he's still talking about it as a disease and it's yeah it's it's almost not right it's a mutation but that's not a disease a disease is i'm probably screwing up semantics here but a disease is something you can treat but he's he's having symptoms of a mutation yeah he's going through a metamorphosis like he's ultimately in that final scene when the fly bursts out of him his flesh is basically being a pupa for this thing that is gestating inside of him which is kind of the final form i guess of the fly well as far as we know as far as we know I mean, until he doesn't get until a chance to get to become anything else fly. yeah, yeah. brundlepod <laughs> brundlepod is just what this episode is hey now i know that probably the the biggest taboo word on this podcast based on the i don't want to say gimmick i don't want to say shtick the <laughs> The theme? The gimmick? The basis? I I said I don't want to say gimmick. (laughs) I Uh, can say it for you. Okay, fine. Well, the the whole idea behind Liminalia is talking about when things aren't fitting in the box Mm -hmm. that we want to easily categorize them on on Netflix, for instance, which you can hear all about on the Netflix (laughs) podcast, where I talk about the category that each one fits into. Anyway, so I know that what you aren't necessarily looking to do is to talk about mashups mm-hmm. right you're not looking to talk about you know the horror comedies that are just it's on the surface like this is both horror and comedy yeah but the fly is so oddly funny sometimes yeah no it's a really weird mix because jeff goldblum is a really good comedic actor and they let him do that quite a bit so it is like a horror comedy it's also definitely a horror tragedy there's a bunch of mashups going on the line that stands out to me from this movie from the first time i saw it way more than be afraid be very afraid Right. Which is strange to see this and realize this is the origin of that yeah, phrase. Yeah, because it feels like it stands out more in all of the other texts that cite it. Yeah. <laughs> um, the one that the one that stands out to me, and it's still like I'll still quote it with uh, with people who saw this movie with me the first time, is the Ugh, that was disgusting when he first oh, when yes. he first vomits onto the food that he's <laughs> when he's trying to eat the donuts, and I believe that's the first time that he realizes that he has these like digestive enzymes that he can spit out onto food yeah and he just like has this almost quaint reaction to this indescribably horrific thing that's happening to him yeah but because he's already had all these other really horrific things happen to him he's got this quaint curiosity about every new mutation that happens yeah normalized social embarrassment as well like Mm -hmm. he he reacts to it not as though it's in of itself horrifying but he's just embarrassed to have done it in front of uh, right. in front of Veronica. He plays it up like a fart. Yeah, exactly. Um and then immediately it's the the scene where his ear falls off and he's horrified at that. Yeah. But again, it's more that he's embarrassed that Veronica has seen it. Yeah. That is actually perfect for what I was mentioning as well. Like this is body horror, this is comedy and this is tragedy because when he says after his ear falls off, I am scared and she comes forward and hugs him, 
it's a very human moment. Like, he is completely degraded at this point. He does not seem human at all. And then all he has to say, because Jeff Goldblum is a fabulous actor, is, I am scared, and I wanted to give him a hug, yeah. despite just how extremely disgusting he is. But then Gina Davis follows it up with this perfect blend of horror and sympathy where she wants to give comfort to this person who is also i am sure bringing such like revulsion to yeah. the essence of her being this is the worst thing that you could see happen to a person and to a person that you love too her ambivalence toward him is given a huge amount of weight in this film yeah no i think that's a really fascinating scene it is at once really ridiculous and really makes me feel very sympathetic toward both of them mm -hmm. um, despite how utterly monstrous he has become at this point yeah if you take away the sci-fi elements of it if you take away the body horror elements of it and you just strip it down to something a little bit more recognizable having a spouse take care of you when you have if, if you have the flu and you're throwing up in the bathroom and you shit your pants right like having a spouse or a partner or somebody take care of that and like take those pants and put them in the laundry, mm -hmm. right? Like that's a deeply, deeply embarrassing moment for you. That person is not excited about experiencing that no. and seeing this gross thing coming out of your body, but also having like the, the support and love. And like, that's the only thing that you need in the world is for somebody to still accept you despite your <laughs> gross poopy self. I'm sorry that I'm talking about like poo all the time. You're a father to young kids. This is how it goes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of poop in my life. I, I think there's one more point that I want to get to in that scene, and it's what you brought up, which is that this seems to be the first time that he's thrown up in order to digest something. This is something where his body just naturally does something that he doesn't realize it can do. And I think this gets to how Cronenberg quite often views bodies, which is as something that affects the way that we think. I want to add an addendum to that. It's yeah. the first seemingly negative thing that his body gains the ability to do. Because be yeah, yeah, before yeah, that, yeah. we see him gain like the gymnastic abilities. Yes. And I can't remember if that's before or after he learns he can climb on the ceiling. It's about the same time. At the right. But that's the first. Yeah. Like, and it's not entirely that he sees it as negative either the next time we see him in the film he's very excited about showing the world that he can do this like he has her videotape this e so he has this kind of i think you're right scientific curiosity toward it when he is doing the recordings i think that he is also using science and scientific curiosity as something of like a security blanket or a coping mechanism yeah, i fully agree i'm just like this is how i'm compartmentalizing my disease yeah so that i can try to fit it into terms that i can understand and hopefully cope with yeah. Which I can certainly understand the temptation to do. And like, I'm glad for him that he has the tools to do that yeah. rather than just being entirely consumed by fear. And this is seated very early on in the film. He's consistently shown to be ambivalent toward his own ambition. He has these very excited phases and then these very down phases about what he thinks the success of the project is going to mean. And he consistently turns to a kind of scientific optimism that he feels is outside of himself. Similarly, the night that she leaves when he's had his big success and he thinks she's gone out to see her ex-boyfriend, he turns toward his technology. He turns toward the kind of optimism of scientific endeavor to buoy him up and to get him busy again. And so there is a sense all the way through that the turn to investigation, the turn to the idea of science as being this necessarily optimistic, positivist endeavor is how he copes with things, even if he doesn't necessarily believe it, because how could you when science has turned you into a giant fly monster? Right. I've always seen technology as an extension of us. So it makes sense that technology becomes part of us. It returns to us. In the 50s, a lot of sci-fi was presenting technology as dehumanizing, but really, it's nothing but human. All the best and worst parts of ourselves. So that technology should infuse our lives, that it should intertwine with our lives, right into our bodies, is inevitable. David Cronenberg. One of the things that I was really interested in when I was re-watching this that I didn't remember from way back when I was 12 and watched half of this. Imagine that. Yeah, I know. In the title, the way that they feature with the fly, there is a kind of sense that this is a man synthesized with an animal. But there is 
such a huge amount of technology built into this film as well. And I'm not talking about just like the telepods, which are important, but right from before he goes through the telepod, he has this antagonistic relationship with how computers and technology engages with flesh. He rolls over onto that microprocessor and cuts himself. And that's the part that the computer sews together with the fly initially, because that is harm in his body. And so that's the part that first starts getting shown to be where there's new flesh growing, right? Yeah. The idea that the computer is given a kind of love of flesh in terms of its coding by Brundle, but it has no way of telling what is, I suppose, in a hierarchy of flesh over the other, which is the flesh that should be going through the telepod, which is the flesh that shouldn't, i.e. the fly. It has no way of knowing. Like, there is the sense that a computer, when it's integrated or dealing with flesh, has a kind of violence or problematic nature in its dealings. And so I think that's what gets fulfilled at the end when he gets turned into telepod fly or brundlepod fly when he is synthesized with the telepod at the very end of the film. The, I mean, the computers are doing exactly what they're told. And if there's any sort of thing to be said about technology in this movie is just that it's a tool that needs to be treated respectfully. Yeah. And that you need to try to consider everything when dealing with with computers and when giving very specific directions because mm-hmm. it's kind of like a genie thing right like yeah. you got to be careful what you wish for because I mean, he was working on fusion and then the door got opened accidentally at the end and he ended up fused with the pod the machine did exactly what it was told to do yeah I mean, seth brundle says on a couple of occasions that computers are stupid and they only know what we tell them right if yeah. i do not have a concept of something you can't hold me to that standard I think I'm thinking of the moments in the Videodrome, the television, stomach, mouth, etc. Cronenberg always seems to be interested in how technology and flesh are coming together in these moments. This film seems very interested in that, but extremely ambivalent as to how tech reacts to flesh. Because for the most part, it is just a reaction that Cronenberg is interested in staging over Mm -hmm. and over and over again, because he just has these kind of fetish objects. Yeah, I think it just, I think there's a gap in this movie that would have been impossible to fill and it was just kind of a step that needed to be taken narratively where Brundle realizes that there's an essence to flesh that is Mm. missing yeah that he hasn't taught the computer yet how to deal with and then he does somehow he's able to in his mind translate that seemingly unquantifiable tangible concept of what life and flesh is Mm -hmm. and teach that to a computer so he's doing this this magic almost and maybe we're supposed to read it as him just being incredibly brilliant but there's do you see what i mean that there's a step missing where he's just like oh i've realized the problem now i've solved the problem without like that's that's the part i want to see i want to understand what it is about flesh that he was able to translate into we need to make the computer love flesh it's like well what does that look like he's speaking so poetically about it when it's probably more about like he forgot about collagen or something right (laughs) And that's why everything's turning inside out because he's not binding it together properly. Yeah, exactly. So maybe they just left, maybe they didn't go there because the answer would inherently have to be more biological than poetic. Yeah. So I don't know. I didn't really see the technology as a source of horror. Right. Okay. A tool that could be mismanaged. It's like magic, right? I mean, the moments where we're the least sympathetic to Brundle are when he's no longer exploring science. He's looking to use the pods as a tool. Yeah. When he's trying to force people to transform. Yes. And he's no longer trying to to learn anything or explore anything. He's just like, okay, I know what I know. I just, I need someone else to suffer with me. I need somebody else to be going through what I'm going through. Yeah. Which is interesting because he is a sympathetic character, but he is shown to put a baboon through this machine, despite knowing what's going to happen, just to show... Veronica what happens so there is a kind of sense that he is not entirely all there even from the beginning in terms of his scientific ethics I I think I'm a bit more understanding of that oddly enough as somebody who strives for vegetarianism (laughs) in their their day-to-day life I mean lab rats exist for a reason I think that it was a dramatic choice by Cronenberg to escalate directly to a baboon yes I don't think that's necessarily on Brundle. Um, I think that he's also like, he is experimenting. Like, you have to experience what goes wrong 
in order to try and figure out yeah. what's going on. I think that, I mean, the sacrifice of animals is just, we're supposed to read that as part of the scientific process. Yeah, no, I, than that, I, I being... agree with that. It's just that in the scene before in the restaurant, he says, I know what happens when living things go through. We're not going to talk about it while you're eating. And then the next scene is him showing her. Yeah, I, I guess I just kind of figured that he had done some work and yeah, was trying something okay. different. Because he's disappointed when that happens, right? Like right. he's frustrated. That's a good he, point. He feels like a failure. He's clearly done something in between to try to avoid this outcome. And still, he has this outcome. And I think he feels bad for killing this baboon. Like he's yeah. not just upset no, about the he, horror. No, he clearly does. He apologizes to its brother. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's really Which, are you, are you aware of the deleted scene? I am, yeah. Apparently Do you want to this... describe it? Yeah, apparently there's this deleted scene that was ultimately cut from the movie so as to preserve sympathy for Seth Brundle where um, when he's testing out the the fusion capabilities of the pods, he fuses the remaining baboon with a cat. Yeah. It goes crazy or... So it's, I think, in pain and so he puts it out of his misery right, by so he beats beating it, it over the head yeah. with a lead pipe. Right. Test audiences apparently just at that point had no more sympathy for Seth Brundle at that point, seeing yeah. him club an animal to death with a lead pipe. Which um, I can understand. I mean, knowing that, you realize that sympathy for this character is an important part of this story. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's held on to for as long as possible. And I mean, the moments before the Brundlefly dies, you realize there's this this humanity, this essence of him still in there Yeah. when the, f- I, I, I'm trying to not say him, I'm trying to say it, it. but I have to say him because yeah. he's still part of that. You know, he pulls the gun barrel into the middle of his forehead and seemingly pleads to Veronica to end his life. Yeah. I and mean, you, you feel bad right up until the end. You don't feel good when that fly explodes. I think that the deleted scene is an interesting idea because consistently he is shown to be waging war against this more unkind, unfeeling version of himself. So I can see why they might have filmed it and put it in, but I think that it really adds to the movie to not have it in because it makes it feel far more reckless that he's trying to do this synthesis at the end, something that he really hasn't tested out at all that speaks to his desperation to try and gain some humanity back, even if only for a short amount of time, while at the same time speaking to how perverted his sense of humanity is now, that it's just, how much flesh can I accrue? But speaking of deleted scenes, the ending that you're talking about, about feeling sympathy for this creature as its head gets blown off, the ending works so perfectly for that when she just collapses and cries. That was one of many endings that they filmed. Yeah, I was pretty upset when I was reading about the multiple yeah. endings and like how this could have possibly gone. There's, I guess, one where there's another dream where Veronica ends up giving birth to a, a butterfly creature that's yeah. nowhere near as horrific. I don't have thoughts or opinions on that one. But the one where she ends up in like a happy domestic life with Stathis. That's exactly the same one I was thinking of. Yeah, it just feels just, horrifying. It's so... It's disrespectful to the characters is what it is. Like, it's yeah. disrespectful to Seth. And I mean, if the idea is that you're trying to show how horrible disease is and that, you know what, on top of that, life goes on and she ends up with someone else. Like, I get that if, yeah. you, if you're trying to show the horror of disease, I can kind of get that. But it was more about, like, this is a, a character who, the Stathis character, like, he doesn't, he doesn't deserve redemption. And I don't want to see this serial sexual assaulter. Yeah. This, this creep. This stalker. Yeah, I mean, like, his behavior is not in any way acceptable. And the movie already as it is, without considering these alternate endings, he fills the role of, like, the hero boyfriend character yeah, yeah. almost to an uncomfortable degree. Like, he's there for her, and I'm I'm glad that she has a support system. But he, yeah, he's too boyfriendy already. Yeah, the film is really interested in taking these two men and having them have polar opposite storylines, right? Like, Stathis gets a sort of redemption story and becomes a slightly not better person, but shows himself to have slightly better actions toward the end of the film. Whereas Brundle begins as this adorably nerdy boyfriend figure and becomes horrifying. But to take it that far, that the polarity is fully switched and she's now in a relationship with Stathis, I had this visceral reaction against that. It just felt utterly wrong right. to me. And I don't want to give too much credence to things that were left on the cutting room floor because yeah. they were left there for a reason. For a reason. And so, yeah. I mean, the movie is better for having made those yeah. choices. But I think it's interesting to talk about why it is better, why this version of the ending feels more meaningful, specifically because it just leaves you with this feeling of 
how wrong and how accidental this story became. Like, this was just due to an accident of a moment, rather than any kind of hubris or anything like that. This feels very much like, if, you, if it's going to be a tragedy, it's going to be one of those Greek tragedies where it was one of the better people in society who just gets brought down for no reason. Mm-hmm. He is jealous, he's antisocial, and he's drunk, but he doesn't seem to have any real reason to be brought this low. Yeah, I, yeah, I just don't need to see Stathis elevated. No, exactly. I don't exactly. care how heroic his behaviors are. Like, he doesn't, there shouldn't be a reward for that character. No, no, I fully agree. Although I don't, I also don't think that he deserved to have two of his appendages melted off in the most horrifying sequence in the film i that one was what got to me that was yeah that was the most affecting one yeah that and the jaw twitching on the floor were the two worst oh yeah i forgot about that yeah yeah this yeah I think I, I don't want to like overstate the psychology of this, but it is possible that I had repressed some of these <laughs> <laughs> because I did not remember. Like as it was happening, I was like, "Oh right." I mean, I wasn't like triggered or anything. Yeah, it looked familiar as I was watching it, but I had definitely not been actively thinking about these images. Yeah. No, I think you kind of tamp them down. I'm not one of those people who enjoys gore or body horror. Like slashers, for example, are not my kind of genre and so this was just this was over the top for me yeah i I felt very vincent price Mm -hmm. well the the effect of the the melting hand at least i assume you read the the same imdb trivia that i did (laughs) it was it was interesting to find out that this was done with the same technique by the same person who did the face melting scene from raiders oh i didn't read that that's actually really interesting yeah so it's just it's wax yeah that's melted with hot air and then sped oh, up. Oh wow! So it's it's the exact same effect by the exact same special effects. That's really coordinator. cool. Actually. Yeah. So before we end this podcast, we should get into some further readings. If somebody enjoyed this film, do you have a suggestion as to something else they might enjoy? If you enjoyed this film, you might enjoy therapy. <laughs> Um, I, d- I mean, the cop-out answer for me is no. One, because I'm remarkably poorly read, even when it comes to movies, for a person who has a movie podcast. But also because as much as I'm backing away from my idea that this is one of my top five greatest movies of all time, I don't think I've never seen anything else that gets that does this right okay. in the way that it does it. Like, it is yeah. a unique movie i can think of other movies that get this ridiculously gory like dead alive for instance yeah is the one that jumps to mind for some reason but dead alive doesn't earn it (laughs) the way that the fly does it doesn't disturb you the way that the fly does you don't care about the monster yeah oh that's really interesting yeah yeah i mean this the the feeling that you get watching the fly or the feeling that i get watching the fly is unique in the blending of sympathy and disgust I want to have either of those feelings purely. Yeah. And the movie refuses to let you do that, which I think is very appropriate when you're talking about disease and death and and topics like that. You if you see a loved one who's sick, you want to only be showing them unconditional love, but you also are lying to yourself if you're not disgusted by the disgusting realities of somebody having cancer or having a disease or having just parts of them behave in ways that they shouldn't mm-hmm. right like i'm yeah no yeah. i understand i mean i'm thinking about watching you know seeing i don't know if this is going to be appropriate i'm thinking about i mean being in the room watching my mother die of cancer and you know pulling her off life support mm-hmm. and wanting to have this pure emotional transcendent reaction but also being horrified at watching a machine move her body for her to make her continue to live briefly like right it's not a pure thing life and death are disgusting but also the best thing that exists in the whole world right so if you like the fly <laughs> you might try life i guess because it's the closest thing to that shit show of a movie. i don't know what are your recommended readings
I, I, I similarly struggled with this because there isn't anything like this. Like I, one of the ones that I was thinking of was The Thing, um, which similarly has really fascinating practical effects. It's got a similar kind of reaction toward flesh, but you're exactly right. It does not ask you to get into the head of the monster. Yeah, that gives you the freedom to enjoy the spectacle. Yes, exactly. You don't care about the people who it's happening to. And that is what was profoundly odd to me is just how utterly sad this movie is like it is just it's upsetting so yeah i thought about the thing yeah when when you have an abortion scene be a reprieve from the intensity of your movie um so yeah the thing i thought about i also thought about uh and this is a call back to the hammer horror podcast the quatermass experiment which is similarly about a man who is undergoing a transformation into something monstrous and and it asks us to associate ourselves with this man for as long as we can uh, and he ultimately becomes this kind of weird octopus creature spoilers because he has been infected by something from space so it, it follows a similar sort of pattern i know it, it's that's just a thursday but it's just not as good as this yeah. film so ultimately i i settled on a lovecraft story which is the second time in a row that we've suggested a lovecraft story but I was thinking of Cool Air, which is not a very popular Lovecraft story, but it's a story about a man who has tried for years to keep his body working despite the fact that it is failing, and we ultimately watch it crumble and fall apart in this last moment where he's desperate to try and keep his body cool because, spoilers, he's been dead for years and he's just trying to keep his humanity for as long as possible. And that feeling of a very kind of elegiac, weird horror, I think, was the closest that I could get to this movie. Mm. It's a very hard mark to hit because this film is exceptionally unique. But yeah, I think that's all I have to say. Did you have anything that you wanted to add? No, I'm somehow have made myself sadder than yeah. when I started. So <laughs> thanks, Cronenberg. Canadian film. <laughs> do you want to end this incredibly sad episode with a with a plug? Sure do. Uh, yeah, so if you have enjoyed listening to me talk about a movie uh, or would like to hear me talk about a movie that is less of a bummer most of the time, uh, you can check out my podcast, uh, which is called the Netflakes podcast, Netflakes. Yeah, we do a, a long-form analysis of some movie or sometimes TV series that's available to stream on Netflix in Canada. The idea is that Canadian audiences can tune in if they want to watch the movie. It's just a couple clicks away. Watch the movie, and then we can do it as a movie club sort of thing. Or just listen to me and a guest or a co-host ramble for a while. I've sounded apologetic about it, and that's because I'm Canadian, <laughs> but I actually think it's good. It is really fabulous. It is one of my favorite podcasts, actually. Oh. I will go on the book saying that. And we did a kind of sister episode to this one. Um, so you can do a science fiction double feature and go over to his podcast and listen to that episode, yes. The Daily Earth Should You still. can listen to me be happier talking about a worse movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly not an emotionally affecting movie in the mm -hmm. way that this one was. Yes. Uh, so uh, you can also follow Netflix on social media, on Facebook, uh, on Twitter, where it is at Netflix Pod. You can follow me on Twitter at Dylan Clark Moore. That's Dylan spelled the right way which is d-y-l-a-n and then c-l-a-r-k-m-o-o-r-e and i'm also on letterboxd with the same username so i don't know if you talk about letterboxd no no riley's on letterboxd you're not um so letterboxd is a movie diary social media platform where you can just review or just rank or give ratings to the movies that you're watching and yeah i'd love to talk to people there or on twitter or by having them tune into my podcast and letting me know what you think. Excellent. So if you want to get in touch with us, uh, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at LiminaliaCast. You can email us at LiminaliaCast at gmail.com just to suggest a story that we should do coming up. Or if you have any comments on the episode, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks very much, Dylan Clark Moore, for being on the show. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. And thanks, everyone, for listening. This episode was produced and edited by Tom Stewart. That's me. Our reader this month was Anami Lee. Liminalia's theme is Funny Bones and Lazy Legs, provided by Exploding Plastics. The rest of the tracks on this episode have been provided by Wormwood. More information, including track listings and the articles we cited in this episode, even that blog and the news item on photons teleported into space, yes, it was true, can be found in the episode description. If you enjoyed this episode... 
please rate and review us on iTunes. Finally, this episode was taped at UnLondon's 121 Studios, and we want to thank them for letting this strange podcast about horror use their enviable space. <laughs>